This is Low Violet. I'm your host, Tyler Byrne. On the show, I interview writers, poets, publishers. Today, I chatted with Aaron Taylor, published Bimbo Lamb uh, by Archway Editions. Uh, go check it out. You have a lot of books on you. Oh, yeah, it's a combination of me and my partner Ben's books. So this isn't even all of the books. There are more books uh, that because, yeah, no, it's um, I love books, obviously guilty, as I'm sure you do. But it's I don't know. It's funny because like he he's more focused on like postmodern, you know, dude writers, which is chill. So there's a lot of that. And then I have like so much just random nonfiction about like anarchism and like different things. And it's just a very funny little mix and poetry, of course. Do you consider yourself an anarchist? Yes. Really? You're like you're like mm-hmm. confident about that. Mm-hmm. How so? I am confident about that. How so do I? Yeah, I guess. I mean, because to me, I I generally have kind of come to the belief in my life. I've had various periods of coming to it and being dissuaded as early a really young age, um, but then a few years ago. I kind of realized, no, like, I truly don't believe that there can be such a thing as a just state. Like, this is nothing to do with the reality of states exist or not, but more, is there the possibility of that ever existing, like a truly just, ethical state? That you know, like, in a true democratic notion? I'm like, I don't know if that really does exist, and I kind of more believe that people within their own communities can, like, decide what's best for them. Mm-hmm. And I truly think that, you know, the state is a mechanism of violence. And I'm not even just meaning the United States. Like, every state has its own unique violent history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but yeah, a few years ago, I basically just decided to spend a lot of time reading other anarchists. And just, you know, it just became kind of a, a very certain thing for me. Yes. I would say definitely I'm on the left, but an anarchist for sure. Um, I would say the first thing that made me interact with anarchism was actually (laughs) uh, Emma Goldman's Marriage and Love, which is basically this essay she wrote, um, it's like a speech she would give and perform where she was talking about how the institution of marriage is like the state certified thing that's actually something that destroys love as a concept and when i was in ninth grade i was so in high school i was a debate kid uh which i'm sure isn't surprising because somehow we're, we're already talking about like politics um and because of that i did speech as well and i did her yeah marriage and love as a standard oratory uh which was really funny because one time this uh couple was my judge uh, like a guy brought in his like fiance and then I just like for 10 minutes ranted about how marriage was like this horrible contract that you shouldn't enter. And obviously the guy, you know, voted me down, but mm-hmm. that was who I was at 15. So I would say that's as early as I kind of got introduced to the initial concepts that eventually led me to, you know, going more into it. Yeah. Which if you notice, Bimbo Land is partially dedicated to Peter Kropotkin. Who's Peter Kropotkin? Kropotkin, he was the man who coined mutual aid. Okay. Like the concept. He was an anarchist who also was working as, um, well, he's technically a geologist, but he did a lot of um, biological research and was working at the same time as Darwin. Um, But he found that species also thrive via collaboration, not just in competition. 
And that's what he eventually used to create the socio-political concept of mutual aid. God damn. It's all going over my head. All right. Sorry. I don't know. No. You asked and I'm just answering. Uh, no, you're good. But thank just you so much for having yourself. me on, you know. This is awesome. Um, I love talking about poetry uh, and wow. everything else. I, I think about, obviously, a lot of things. And I think a lot of things went into bimbo land. And that includes, you know, a lot of anarchist thoughts. So, yeah. So at 15, you were pretty like, uh, like you're like you're confident in your beliefs and you're like, no, at 15, I wasn't that was, you just asked, like, when did I first kind of, you know, yeah. go into it? And I would say that was my first introduction. I did get dissuaded for a second, but then I would say by the time I was like 25, I resurfaced back into that thinking and just kind of accepted it about myself. But always it was leaning in that direction for majority of my life. Do you think if you'd stayed in Broken Arrow, you would still have these beliefs? Or do you think the environment around you? It's so funny because a lot of people might not even know that I'm from Broken Arrow. But yeah, uh, (laughs) no, I I don't know what would have happened if I stayed in Broken Arrow. I left Oklahoma at 18 Mm -hmm. uh, and I never lived there again. I mean, I would go back sometimes for a summer. I think I went back two summers once in college. But since then, I mean... So it's hard to say, because even when I was young, I was a bit of a sore thumb in Oklahoma, if that makes sense. Like, I stood out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, even then. And um, and I was raised by two Marines. So I was growing up in the Bible Belt, raised by two Marines. I would say I had a very authoritarian upbringing. Um, and I think being in Oklahoma, I mean, I don't know. I have friends who stayed the whole time and have very similar beliefs to me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I do think that the overall culture of Oklahoma, obviously, is way more conservative. Oh, yeah. Um, and as you know, uh, since you're yeah. still, you're in Tulsa still. Yeah. Yeah, which is, it's interesting that, like, we're both from the same neck of the woods. When I was there, no one cared about indie lit. So I'm really, in, I was very pumped. It's me and you. someone from Tulsa. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's us. We're the straight up i mean that's not technically true i'm sure again i haven't really been in the scene so i'm sure there's stuff going on that i don't know about but like yeah when i was living there as like a teenager for sure do you think you'll ever come back and live here in like 20 or 25 years oh my gosh i don't think i'll live in oklahoma again no i mean i think i mean i have a lot of plans for different times to visit and there are things i like to work on there but I don't see myself like trying ever to move back there on a permanent basis. If you had like um like a position as like a teacher or instructor of like poetry, like if like <laughs> OS- if OSU hired you, I don't know. They'd have to pay me a lot of money, and I also kind of don't believe anybody could teach someone poetry. So oh yeah, I'm one of those poets. Like yeah, I kind of believe someone if they want to be a poet should just write poetry and learn what it means to them, and I think. You know, don't be wrong. I think a teacher in general of any medium can be very encouraging and helpful, mm-hmm. but more in my opinion for like mentorship, you know what I mean? But mm-hmm. you can do that outside of the academic system. Like I've had so many mentors, but I mean, I never went to an MFA program, you know, for example, mm-hmm. like I, I didn't really, you know, have much of a desire to, but it's kind of, at least at the time I was coming up, it was taught basically to people or talked about as such where you had to do those things. Uh, yeah, which I thought especially, was quite, mm-hmm. especially 10 years ago. Yes. Yes. No, 10 years. It was like, it was so, 
And then if you were someone who was coming up online or through Indie Lit, you weren't taken as seriously, mm-hmm. you know, obviously. And so it, it was a very different environment. Um, so I, like, never thought I would have, like, for example, a feature like book. Like, I never thought I would have any type of, di- you know, big book. Mm-hmm. That was like, I was like, oh, a chat book. I'm going to have a few chat books in my life, you know. Didn't expect something like, you know, what I have currently. But at the same time, you know, I kind of had to accept that, like, I wouldn't have the same poetry career as some people because I had no desire to go into an MFA and then go teach and do those things. Like I always admired Frank O'Hara and, you know, in the fact that he curated at the MoMA and wrote lunch poems. I mean, I was like, yeah, that's the kind of shit I'm about. You know, I'm about going, because to me, the thing that'll teach you how to be a poet is to go and live life. You think? Yes. I do. I think going and having experiences, digesting them, reflecting on what they mean for you, what your experiences relate to the world or how they relate to the world and be able to concisely put that. I mean, I don't know. I think poetry is unique because poetry has existed like all of humanity, right? It existed before the Academy. Okay. There have been poets in every culture since the turn of time, you know? Yeah. And that, and it's always been an archive of what's going on, you know, like, do you think Sappho when she was fucking banging out those tile for, you know, those fragments, do you think Sappho mm-hmm. was thinking people like, sure. Arguably there is like, you know, that one poem where she's like, you know, something people will be thinking of us and it's really beautiful, but she had no clue that would actually be happening. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? But it's the beauty of poetry and, you know, no one's going to be like, Oh, well, you know, Sappho didn't have, you know, an mfa yeah. <laughs> like no one's gonna do that yeah and it's just i think that poetry like to me poetry can exist outside of the standards of what modern society tries to put on a poet in this capitalist way because to me poetry has always existed even pre-capitalism pre any economic system you know and yeah. so the idea of going and teaching i i'm not against it entirely if it felt the right move for me but I also still think if I were to teach a class of poetry, I would start the first day basically explaining that I'm not going to be able to teach you how to be like the best poet alive. Cause I don't want someone to write just like me. I want them to write like them. And mm-hmm. I think the issue is sometimes people go into MFAs, fiction, poetry, any type, visual, any type, and they have a very clear idea of what they want their art to be. And they leave it in having no clue because they've been spending the whole time in their MFA, like trying to, you know, curtail what they think will lead their work to success. The reality is what leads your work to success is knowing yourself and making work that is that, you know, I yeah. think personally. Yeah, so I, like I don't know if I would <laughs> maybe teach. Or maybe you would teach something outside of an academic space. Yeah, no, I mean, I think if there was a specific type of workshop I was interested in having a collaborative exploration of a theme with people, I'd be down for that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you ever do like an online? Um, I'm not against it. No. Uh-huh. I mean, if people wanted that for me again, I haven't even tried to like, um, explore that. See if that, yeah. Cause to me, I'm like still of the belief that there's so much I'm learning as a poet. Mm-hmm. And I love to learn with other people, but I like, who am I to say I'm a teacher? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's it's like it's not to say that I don't think to teach people, but more I think again, if poetry is a conversation with yourself, and I'm still in that long conversation with myself in my own work, you know? 
Mm-hmm. But you maybe like- in 40 years or 25 years, maybe. Who knows? I can't speak to what, like, Aaron in, like, 25 years is going to think, right? But right now, that's where I'm at, right? As a 27-year-old, which is fair. Yeah. So I, I like in your poems, your stanzas, they stand out from the the side. And like Mary Boo and Carmen, they were saying that you may be inspired by uh, Chelsea Minis from Bad Bad. Chelsea Minis. Yeah, I love Chelsea Minis. Poemland, all that stuff. No, I I definitely love Chelsea's style. Um, I love Chelsea's very conversational elements. But I do think if it's like how I enjoy poetry. Mm-hmm. I would also say, yeah, among other huge influences was C.A. Conrad. Mm-hmm. I would say their work, um, their use of form mm-hmm. has heavily uh, influenced me. Um, I think that they are such a fantastic, like, like lifelong poet, you know, who really can showcase like what a career as a poet can be, like this lifelong relationship with your own work and your life. And it's beautiful. I saw you had a book uh, you're working on now that's a compilation of it's like screenplays, short stories, and poems. Oh, <laughs> well, no, the screenplays. So I, I so currently I'm living in Los Angeles because I've started uh, writing screenplays because I have the intention of trying, you know, to hopefully make movies someday. Who knows? Mm. But um, in regards to the, I'm basically working on two books right now. Um, and one of the books I've been working on for like a year and a half. It's titled mm. Adam. Well, that's the working title right now. I might change that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's at 59,000 words. It's a novel in three point of views from the same protagonist at different points in their life. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. And it's loosely autofiction. Eventually it becomes very much fiction, right? But it's loosely autofiction, right? It's loosely based on my own life. Um, however, I never named the protagonist ever throughout the whole book so far. Are you big into autofiction? Um, Yes and no. I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of a complicated question because I think, I think a lot of things could be defined as autofiction even pre- before the current understanding of it. For example, I love Kathy Acker, and Kathy often put herself in her own work and often also rip from other people. And also, you know, like there's there's a lot of things that I could perceive as being some autofiction that I really you know love. However, at the same time, I don't think everyone has. This is going to sound funny, but. I don't think everyone needs to do autofiction because <laughs> yeah. like, here's the thing is like, I think if someone has a life that they can pull from that, they eventually can drive it into a very interesting fiction story. Like I think then go for it. But I think if it's yeah. kind of just like a neurosis on your own life and not much happens and I find it kind of boring. Right. So I think it depends on the work, honestly, to that question. So do you think poetry is autofiction mostly? Um. Well, Yes or no, as a, to kind of go back to what I was saying earlier, I mean, since poets have been doing, yeah, <laughs> doing poets, poets have been doing poets uh, for so long. Um, I think poetry, obviously, initially, if you look look at it, like dealt more with like a overall identity of the people around them than necessarily someone's own life, right? Like trying to keep the stories of their culture, like big poems, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I think in more current era, there has been obviously a move to confessional types of poetry, mm-hmm. even if people would not put that word to like confessional used to be like, we're speaking about 10 years ago, people were like, Ooh, confessional, you know, like, yeah. 
but I find that silly um, mm -hmm. because I think all work that is good relates to yourself and also to others. Do you like so the idea that you're not going to put a bit of yourself as well as a bit of other people and a bit of your life, like, I'm sorry, I don't, I find it kind of boring when someone like is reading a poem about a tree sometimes. And I'm not saying it's always boring. Some are excellent poems by form and by this, but I'm like, you know, I don't know. Like there is such like, and here's the thing is like, you don't even have to do a lot. You can put everything wrapped up in metaphor humans. You could be all Dickinson about it and it would still be fantastic, but at least say something about the world in yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Have you ever <clears> read a nature poem by Pico? Tommy Pico? I have. It's been a minute. Yeah, I just I like guess. the I like the whole idea of like he he doesn't want to write a nature poem, but he knows mm -hmm. from like his background and being a poet that poets write nature poems and then he ends up mm -hmm. writing one in the end i just love i don't know i love the whole idea no i think it's amazing to take like like kind of um to fuck with like people's ideas of what something has to be yeah do you like keep a journal yes and no i mean i used to be a tumblr blocker back in the day as many people I think around my age were. And so I think that kind of debilitated um, a journal process. And ATM Fiend, the um, meme page I used to run, kind of operated for a long time as a journal, mm -hmm. but it was very public. So it didn't really actually serve as what a journal should be. Um, I've, I've kind of journaled a bit more in the last year, but most of the time I just put everything into the work and then I journal when something like to me a journal can just be opening a doc and writing just what you need and never looking at it again so i don't necessarily no. do a consistent one okay what would you say to like kids in like broken arrow who are stuck there and want to write poetry just like write it and send it out to press yeah them? no do it write poetry yeah. no yes i mean like i was once like a child and i was like I started writing poetry when I was 12 in Broken Arrow mm -hmm. and I would write it in my spiral notebooks and I would take it to every class and like it became a very known thing that I was writing these poems and this kid that was friends with me at the time his name was Danny he like and by friends I mean kind of loose like you know the kind of antagonistic type of friend you have in middle school right where like sometimes it was really sweet and other times it was like oh yeah we're gonna like be like this and he took like my <laughs> journal like wrote like i heart danny all over it and then like which that journal was my poetry journal you know like i was writing my first poems and it was really like difficult at that time for me that moment but then i kept just like being like whatever i'm just gonna keep writing poems and then i kept you know i think the most difficult thing for me is my mom like tried to put me in therapy as soon as she read my poetry at 12. for real um, yeah she did she didn't even tell me that's what she was doing she did did she put you in therapy? Yeah. My mom was very scared when I was writing my poems because I'd already, so poetry wasn't the first thing I technically wrote. So before that, I was writing horror stories at like eight, nine. I, I yeah. don't know why. I just did. I watched a lot of Fincher movies growing up, like too many. Mm. And um, she, for whatever reason, didn't find those as disturbing. She like would be like, oh, wow, you can write. But the poetry really scared her because as you know, as I've been saying, poetry is a conversation with yourself yeah. about what you're feeling in a really raw way sometimes. And for me, it was this lifeline um, in my young life for me. And 
I think it scared my mom initially. Yeah, it did. And then when I got older and wanted to be a poet, I remember them being like, yeah, but how are you going to make rent? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess what I would say to any kids in Broken Era is that, like, if you want to be a poet, no one is going to actually confirm you should do that. I'm giving you the heads up. And it'll be a long time before people will find that cool. Like, I, I remember going to Montreal in 2018 and going back over the border via train because I did a reading. And I said I went to do a reading and this you know, security guard at the border was like, oh, are you going to declare like 20,000 in poetry money? Just to make fun of me. And I was what like, ah. no, but that's the point I'm making is yeah. like, I think poetry became, there was a renaissance of poetry being cool in the last few years that did not exist um, during the time that I was first getting into poetry, first writing poetry, first public, because I started publishing poetry at um, 19 when I was living abroad because I went to a really weird school where I traveled because I was a global studies student. I didn't, so I never studied writing officially. The type of writing I studied was like research academic writing. Mm -hmm. But point being is if you want to be a poet, just be a poet. Like you can't wait for someone to give you permission because you're just going to run to every single person telling you not to do it. You when just was... have to do it. If you know you're a poet, you're a poet. It's going to happen regardless, you know? When was the first time that someone took notice in your writing did you ever feel did you ever feel the need to be validated or did you already validate yourself because you seem like a very mm. confident person uh i would say well thank you that's very kind of you um i guess the first time in a weird way even though my mom did put me in therapy <laughs> for the poetry uh, she did, um, in my childhood, the one thing that I can give her is when I was writing those short stories, she, I think, was very impressed because my mom can't, neither of my parents went to college, all right? So I was the first no. person in my family to go. And so my, so they're not necessarily, and I say this with love, like confident necessarily, even in their own intellectual abilities. Mm -hmm. And so my mom's very quick to be like, you can write. I can't write and I can see that you can. And so it was one thing she was always willing to give me mm -hmm. uh, was that I could write. And so it was um, one, the one thing I grew up knowing I could do in a weird way, which mm -hmm. is rare. But to be fair, there were a lot of things I grew up knowing in my family's eyes I couldn't do. Like they said I was a good writer, but even my dad was like, you should go and try to be a journalist. What's funny is I cut him out before I became a journalist. But like they were like, you have a talent for writing, but they all of them try to push me away from poetry. Has your mom ever been to one of your readings? Um, no, I've never had one in Tulsa. Okay. But you might. So, think. yeah. Maybe someday. I mean, it's <laughs> funny because, again, I have a complex relationship with home and family. But I, I go back to Tulsa occasionally, and I do when I do a reading. I'm just one of those people that, like, the the bureaucratic of organ Like, when people ask me to read, I'm always usually down. But the bureaucratic... Like some poets are really good at, I'm going to organize my readings so they happen. Mm -hmm. I'm good at showing up when I'm invited, um, basically. But that's why it's like, oh, doing a book tour. I'm like, oh, if a lot's going on in my life, I don't want to put the stress of doing those things on me mm -hmm. and things like that. Different period of my life, it would be cool. But well, surprise, uh -huh. Magic City Books never like reached out to you. I mean, I, well, that's the thing. Um, I don't know like how much, I'm not aware of how much people from back home pay attention to my writing. 
Like the fact you're from home and new, I was like, oh my God, what? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I don't think about it, I guess, because so much of my writing career was either just abroad or in New York or now L.A., you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I remember, like, finding out about you. It was through Stacey Teague, and it was, like, 2017, because I was very much in the Shabby Dollhouse and those people, and she was one of the editors there. And mm -hmm. I just remember her communicating with you over Twitter, and I saw you were from Tulsa, and you're, like, pretty young at the time. But yeah, it was very interesting because you were a poet, and then that's how I kind of got into you. Aw, that's very cute. No, I was very young at the time. Um, that is true. Um, me and Stacy, uh, we met. I guess let me let me double check my timeline here. We met after I turned twenty one, which would have been in the December. Yeah, we met in the beginning of twenty seventeen in person. Because yeah. when I went to Australia, you went um, to Australia. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in Australia. Um, wow. I was living, yeah, no. Uh, so that global studies program I did, I was very lucky because basically the program just itself, like what you would pay for your tuition, it was a part of it, right? It was traveling, yeah. like, because it was a global studies program. So it was the, basically a study, an overall analysis of the impacts of globalization and colonialism in different places. Uh, I was very interdisciplinary. Um, and so, yeah, I spent a bit of time in Australia and I spent a bit of time, especially in the Sydney lit scene. Like I knew like Oliver Mall and like Rory Green and obviously Stacey Teague. Um, they were running subbed in at the time, a reading series that had been running. I used to have a subbed in tote bag that I carried around all of New York because I was so wow. proud of them. Uh, but I, yeah, no, me and Stacey were actually messaging earlier because I found these old photos I'd taken of her in a park. Do you know Speaking of, I can read the Stacey Teague poem. Yeah. If you want. Just, yeah. uh, this seems like a good, like, since we brought up Stace. Do you have any um, of her embroideries? Uh, I believe I have one. Yes, because Stacey actually mailed it to me uh, when I was living in New York. I have one. three. I have this one. Oh, uh, no. Oh, that's a great one. Oh, uh, yeah. no. Stacey is so multi-talented. Uh, Stacey actually taught me how to embroider. I was living in Sydney, but I never was as handy, you know, as, you know, Stacey is, but still fantastic. Yeah. Um, the poem we're going to read uh, is Love Language by Stacey Teague. Um, it was featured in the spinoff in New Zealand. There is a quote to start it with, language does not pour out of me, but is something I've entered, Jack Underwood. I'm at home in the big air, under the surest sky I've seen. I'm touching your poem, the one where you stood in the afternoon. Stopped at a pedestrian crossing in movie magic lighting, moving towards me, imagine. And I do want a little forehead kiss in line in a medium tier rural cafe. I will eat a huge slice of lolly cake. You will drink a huge chocolate milkshake. Everything will be just huge. The feeling also enters the room and the river is there bending around us. And we see ourselves reflected on the surface. And I can hold my stomach to keep the pain inside. And you will hold it from the outside. Sometimes by the river, I see my life as big as a movie screen. Other times is a loose stone to kick down the path. On a loose stone night, I kiss the big air. 
when I'm taking the bins out. I touch the poem in a romance way. When taking out the glass recycling, before walking over to your house in a romance way, the clouds touching as the credits roll. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, I love Stacy's work so much. So I was very pumped when you were like, you should read a teeth poem. And I'm like, yes. What do you think in that poem the periods mean at the end? Well, to me, it felt like a finite use, right? Like in the in the most literal way where there's an emphasis on each line being their own line and taking space. Like in it's a really beautiful way. Confined or distinct. Yes. Because like in your poems, you like stretch them out and you put the lines like in the middle of the page. Maybe the periods here are like keeping them from moving. It would be interesting to see what her next poem is if that were like in a book and if mm -hmm. she did anything with the periods. No, I think that I love the use of periods in that poem. Um, I also just think in general, like periods are a fascinating thing because like, for example, in Bimbo Land, I don't use any periods on yeah. purpose. Um, but that was obviously a very purposeful decision. And I do think that in this Teak poem, the use of periods is very purposeful in the way it is. But also very just the way it's formatted with like the lot, like almost like stacked like a building. Mm -hmm. So what was, you don't use periods and you did that on purpose? For Bimbo Land, yeah. I mean, there have been poems, I mean, since I've been writing since gosh 2015 i guess in the public i mean i've obviously had some poems with periods mm -hmm. but in bimbo land very purposely no why was the purpose or do you not want to Parsh say <laughs> partially because i didn't want any and partially mm. because i thought it would be fun to have a whole book without any and you know also because to me the way i was playing with form like i wanted people to see the lines as their own, even without that. And then also understand that when, you know, the words ran together, they were meant to be read as such. Like I, it's like trusting the reader to be smart enough to know the lines. Yeah. I think I prefer poems without periods. And when I oh, do, yeah. when, cause I just, I guess most poems, I guess I assume wouldn't have punctuation or periods. Mm -hmm. And so when I do see a period, I'm like, why? like, like, why is that there? Like, there has to be a meaning behind right. it. Right. I mean, yeah. Like, I like some punctuation. Like, I love exclamation points. Like, I do yeah. have exclamation points in Bibble. Oh, yeah. Just not periods. Yeah. Because I love, I love exclamation. People who think exclamation points are childish or silly or bad writers. You think they're bad if they don't use them? Like, if they, if, well, not, no, no, no. Not if they don't use them, but if they have the belief that the mm -hmm. use of them are childish or silly then they're probably mm -hmm. bad writers because like why would you have something available to you in a language and not use it yeah when there's clearly a pointed reason for it at times i was going to ask you um in this in bimbo land there's um i want to say a scene or a depiction there's an image of a cake mm -hmm. falling mm -hmm. yes what that seems to come up a lot in many of the poems is that a reoccurring image to you in your writing and are you still going to use that moving on or like the images in this book are they done now i think there was a lot of food in general 
in the Milan in a funny way. Um, but specifically sweet, like two sweet foods, right? Like cake, like things that you can't eat too much of, things that make you sick. Um, and the falling, like I know the poem you're speaking of, uh, <laughs> the one that also is the line about like, you know, when you fuck me, like the little slut that I am. Yeah. And you can hold my feet, but it isn't love, baby. That one, yeah. No, um, that that was actually a very the, the falling of the cake in that poem is quite literal. That was from a real thing that occurred um, with someone I had had sex with that day. I was going through like a sex binge. Um, a lot of Bimbo Land deals with that, um, mm-hmm. with like a period of a very unhealthy relationship to sex in a very real way that I was moving through, archiving, understanding my own relationship to it. And I think a part of the cake theme, the cake metaphor is partially like, uh, you know, symbolic for my own relationship to sex. Like, if that makes sense, like, like the need for something sweet that ultimately is going to make you quite sick. The thing that you want and desire, but in reality is actually good for you. That's interesting. That's all. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Because like cake is definitely like a comfort food, like a luxury food mm-hmm. that you desire. Yeah. Right. It's something that you associate with like a celebration. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But also something being too rich, like the most common thing people say about cakes is they're like, yeah, but I can't eat too much of it. It's just too rich. So then would you compare like a, a sex worker to like a baker of cakes? LOL. Um, and that metaphor? I don't know if I would. I mean, sure, I guess. I mean, sex work is a labor like anything else, right? Yeah. Like it is a thing you do to survive. It is a thing you do to make money. It is a thing you do to put food on the table, to make rent, to buy weed, to anything, to live, you know? Mm-hmm. A lot of people trade sex for many reasons. Yeah. Um, and in many ways, and many who don't even identify with the term sex worker, but might, you know, have technically done things that other people would define as such, right? Because like sex work, obviously, is like sex worker and sex worker put political terms in a sense, so to some extent to adopt the identity of a sex worker so is regardless of your experience, like it's also like to adopt the political identity, the understanding that the work you're doing is a political entity to it as well, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, obviously there are people that do things that would be classified as sex work, but they themselves might not want to use that tape label or tell anyone at all, right? Like they just keep, you know, I mean, that's the reality because it's a criminalized thing. Um, but uh, that wasn't what you were asking. Uh, but in regards to like production, I mean, sure. Like, you know, the baker bakes bread, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you not use that term? Uh, baker? <laughs> no, sex worker. No, I do. I do. I just think um, when I think about like metaphors and like, I, I guess I'm careful about using metaphors in general around sex work. Cause I take so much of it quite seriously. So I automatically like, Oh, I have to be, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to be like, this is, you know, um, but yeah, like a baker bakes bread, right. You're providing mm-hmm. something like any yeah. type of economic trade. Right. And there's also the image of like being held down or like someone like grabbing your feet. And from like not being able to move forward from that poem, is that how you take or it? just That's like through, throughout the book? I think. Mm. I mean, yeah, there's definitely a foot thing in the book, isn't there? Because I think Carmen brought it up at some point. 
Mm-hmm. There's even poems where you images of flying mm-hmm. and wanting to soar. Is that because you're from a small town and wanting to explore the world? Uh, no, I think I, I think a lot of Bibelin does deal with escapism, mm-hmm. um, but to some extent, yes and no, basically, because like I do think coming from where I came from, I have a very much get out of dodge energy mm-hmm. uh, that never really left in a sense um but also very more specifically i think that like yeah like that elements of escape have more to do with the desire to escape and body or circumstances things out of my control which i think many people have right like we all Mm -hmm. have things that are so untenably out of our control in our lives that Mm -hmm. are inevitably just going to be true and i think um the time i was writing dimbalin there were a lot of things occurring that were like that simultaneously so there's a lot of that in the book. When you sit down to write these poems, do you already have something in your head like, I'm going to get this out? Or do you even know what's happening while you're writing? Hmm. Well, with Bimbalin, I'd already written a bit of it when they were like, hey, did you write a book for us? And I was like, okay. Um, and I think it really depends because there have been times where I'll write like five, six poems a day. And then there are times where I write 10 poems in like four months. And like, I feel like sometimes I know what I'm going in for, but mostly i let it come to me. Mm-hmm. I don't like, I never like, oh, I need to write a poem on this exact subject. So let's see what happens. It's more like the poem will come when it comes, the natural process. So for example, like in regards to sex work, right? When I was actively working, there was a lot I had to process constantly. So there were a lot of like, for example, when I was working in a sex dungeon, I mean, I was writing a lot of poems in that time that mm-hmm. I was not even publishing because, you know, like I had no clue even how the poetry community would react to some of those. Ironically, some of those poems are what I read at this series called Unpublishable at Powerhouse Books, which is what led to Bimbo Land being picked up. So, I mean, like, I think that's the thing. And that's kind of what I mean about like, life is what teaches you what you need to write about what you need to process you have to go and live life have anything to say at all yeah and so you know i think by that nature i think the act of a poet and being a poet is both having time to live having time to write what that means to you having time to think truly about what it means to you and also knowing those things will change you mm-hmm. can write on a, a like, and this is kind of going to what you're saying about going in for the purpose of writing on a subject. You're like, Duh, I'm going to write this thing. And no, you know, you can do that. Like, be like, hey, I'm going to write a poem on this thing and then explore it in five years. And again, in five years. And if you are growing as a poet, they will all be quite different poems, even oh, if yeah. it's the same subject. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, everybody and kind of going back to your thing of the themes, everybody's got different themes throughout their whole work that will come out over their the course of their life mm-hmm. like right now i would say i'm in a more death focused period than i've ever been and so like if i was writing bimbalin right now it'd be a very different book in a sense you know yeah. even though i do think bimbalin was touching and did touch on some of the themes i'm now more focused on because there are a lot of poems that reference like the end of anthropocene like the end of the world the end of if or loose but by that i mean the human world um mm-hmm. And things like that, you know, but I couldn't have expected what I'd be writing right now. Cause I, cause Bimbalin was delayed like a year. Yeah. Like of, a year um, printers. Yeah. yeah. Um, a bunch of different books from archways, including one by Alice Notley. Like there were just like, like a lot. So 
there was a whole period where I turned in the book and just had a lot of time to like continue living my life and writing new things. And mm-hmm. like, you know, I mean, and that's the thing, like, I feel like with Bimbo Land, the things I was working through at the time are very much in the book and I'm glad they are. And there'll always be that archive of that in the same way that when I look back on the first chat book I ever had uh, when I was like 19, 20 or whatever called Ooh, which is like four O's, but you can mm-hmm. pronounce it technically however you want to. I did that on purpose because I was pretentious when I was 20. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I look at that and there was a period where I like really was ashamed of that in my early poetry career, like ashamed of my first chat book um, because I thought I rushed it you know? Uh, Cause I did, I was 20. Who was I to write a little book, you know, but I didn't care. I was like, I'm going to do it. Uh, and the irony is I'm not ashamed of it anymore at all. I'm very proud of that baby. But like, I think everybody's going to have weird feelings with their early work. If your career continues. Does yeah. I feel sense? like, yeah. I think like most poets, they look back at their first book and they, they don't see themselves in it. And they're like, Oh, I don't want to talk about it. But I think fans, of the books they like to go to the first like book of poetry that a poet has written because they relate to it because they're of that age right true no i mean especially younger people and like i don't know and i've had a lot of um ebooks that i purposely just kind of put out there like just because i was like i don't want to go through the process of the whole indie lit like submit this to something do this whole bullshit I'm just like, I'd rather just put it out. And one of those was daddy issues, which were um, a lot of different poems that I wrote while cutting out my dad. And I gave away um, many copies because it was like, it's available online, but I also basically was like, if you're an incest survivor, just hit me up and they would email it to you directly. So you can just have Mm -hmm. it for free. And so I gave away hundreds of copies, but you know, people still like download that regularly. And I'm glad, you know, I think sometimes certain work just needs to be out there like that too. Are you an incest survivor? I don't know if I should go in. Yes. Because you, cause you wrote am. about that in the Timberlands mm-hmm. poem. Yes, Timberlands. That's the old bowling alley I used to go to before it was called Broken Arrow Lanes, if you knew that bowling alley. Um, but yes, uh, I am an incest survivor. Uh, don't really have any shame over that anymore. I think many people are. Um, and I think it's really important to destigmatize that reality because otherwise like it can be very detrimental to people to feel like they're the only ones with that experience. And it's actually quite common, but it's like such a taboo thing within our society that so ATM being the page I did for a long time dealt a lot with that topic of just being like, Hey, I've had these experiences. Um, it's partially because at the time I really was, losing it and really needed to just be like i need this out in the world because the shame of holding these things in is bad for me mm-hmm. and not helping me um then it allowed me to realize oh it isn't just me because the moment i came out about that so many other people people i knew people i didn't know um were like yeah me too and i've never told anyone and wow. i think it's very common and people of all genders, ages, everybody, everybody. And I think it's something that there's a lot of rage, a lot of pain, but you need to find acceptance and community. And for me, um, 
I did find that three team themed as well as I went to a survivors of incest anonymous meeting. So if any uh, incest survivors are listening, I highly recommend those groups because it is really refreshing to be able to be in a space where you can say like all these things about your life around people who have also all went through it mm-hmm. in their own ways. And everyone's got their own unique thing, obviously, but like you won't have to justify your life. And I think. I think there's a point in healing as an incest survivor. You can say, oh, yeah, these things happen to me, but they don't actually define me. I'm all these other things, too. Yeah. In the same way that, yeah, I've been a sex worker. I'm all these other things, too. I've been so many things in my life. Yeah. And so many things have impacted me, and I'm not ashamed of any of them. And one of them is, yeah, I I went through some fucked up shit as a kid. And that's part of why I don't go home to Tulsa really as much. But I think, you know, we all are you know we all go through certain things that's why poetry for me personally is the longest relationship of my life Mm -hmm. because it was the thing that allowed me to ground myself in myself through years of abuse and then create a new life for myself quite literally i was able to go and be a poet in new york and now i'm a person with a book and all these things and poetry was the thing that saved me and allowed me to know myself you know, mm-hmm. and that's why I tell everybody, everybody, even people that don't think of themselves as poets, right? Yeah. You should write a poem. Like if someone's going towards it, write a poem. Because yeah. just even if it's not to show anyone at all, cause especially because once you start publishing shit, then you go into the weird cycle of, oh, I need to publish to affirm that I'm a poet still mm-hmm. and all that bullshit people fall into early in their career, right? Yeah. fair. Everyone does it. I did too. I hated that period. Now I could go a year without publishing and no one is going to doubt my identity as a poet. Yeah, and that's, that's great. true. And that's the thing. Like, you, once you reach that point, you can be like, oh, yeah, but it wouldn't have happened if I didn't, yeah, also go through some really horrific stuff that forced me to find poetry at a really young age. Yeah. Um, Sorry you... if that's too heavy for the, no, the pod, but you that's asked. Fine. So. When you moved from writing poetry to writing scripts, and like your forms but you have a very formless form and i think in script writing it's very heavy on form was that difficult no uh well i mean yes and no in a sense uh because i mean learning any new form is going to be difficult initially Mm -hmm. you know i mean it's always going to be like shit you know your first few tries a screenplay because you're like oh i didn't realize that i do this and this and this because the way Mm -hmm. i i taught myself how to write screenplays um because i basically you know uh more or less i was working at uh the new york observer otherwise known just as observer as the arts editor and i wrote two pilots like two hour-long pilots on my own and i would have friends read them friends who were already screenwriters and give me back notes and that's how i taught myself if i was doing things wrong or right or whatever um and i had a lot of like really legitimate encouragement from people um Mm -hmm. that really were helpful but what's interesting is i actually think script writing is kind of a mixture of journalism and poetry because so much of script writing is word economy and poets that's their whole thing and if you can write excellent poetry right you can write beautiful description uh, that people try to act like description doesn't matter but it's a huge part of 
good writing and if you can write interesting dialogue which you know if you're a person who's a poet you're always thinking about people are saying to each other that could be a good line mm -hmm. you know because you know what you I mean you're always thinking of good lines so it, it's yeah. very easy to me to like see how poetry and screenwriting have like a relationship to me are you going would you making like uh you said you're gonna make movies would you ever do one like to. would you ever use like just like a, like a cell phone or would you want like the most professional like equipment? So right now I'm developing a short film um, mm -hmm. that will like be shot on like an actual camera and like will be a production crew and all that jazz. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I'm not against stuff that's shot on that, but I guess the stuff I'm more interested in is actually like being able to be on sets and things like that. Mm -hmm. um because i basically i wrote a a feature this year that i would really like to direct eventually someday so i'm basically creating a short film so i can show that i can direct which isn't something i really thought i would find like i don't know in my life like i you know i didn't grow up thinking about even doing film or tv at all but i really like i love screenwriting i love screenwriting i think it's so fun i think it's really interesting then me and my partner ben we actually met because we started collaborating on a pilot together and he's known for writing horror movies actually more mm -hmm. usually uh super dark times um the night house and like the more recent hellraiser hellraiser movie so he has that kind of background but i'm more into like emotional thrillers mm -hmm. and so we actually just finished writing a feature called bell minor together that we are hoping he will direct and then i'm now working on another feature called minefield that you know you just kind of have to keep writing all these things and eventually hopefully something comes of it right but it's just choosing to me it's like choosing what mediums for the right things right because i'm writing this novel i've also started writing a lot of short stories i have like three short stories that i eventually want to put in a collection called death fetish mm -hmm. um <laughs> and you know i think that and i'm also working on non-fiction books so i i think that it's just kind of the nature that i jump around to a bunch of things but i would like to obviously like work in hollywood to some extent but i don't you know i see the work i make probably not being a commercial type of thing so i'm like oh maybe i should learn to direct so i can make the things i want but who knows we'll see we'll see what happens right uh that's the thing with with la and just like this industry it's kind of like a roulette of mm -hmm. like working very hard meeting a lot of people and then meeting the people that are like yeah i could see that with you and then keep working when you were in new york were you writing short stories and scripts or did you have any intention to or were you just sticking to the poetry well i started writing scripts in new york um, okay while i was a journalist so oh. as i said like when i was the arts editor i like i was editing like 200 writers on the reg uh, if you're looking at freelance um, in the total, I was editing the total fine art section, which meant so I got that job. I think I think I started it when I was 24, something like that, 24, 25, something like that. And I had it for like two years, so it took up quite a bit of my life. And it was, but yeah, because I was I was covering theater, so that would mean like Broadway, off theater. I was covering opera, which means everything going on at the Met ever. I was covering books, which means all books, and then I was covering the fine arts and the visual arts, which meant galleries, museums, auctions, and I also occasionally covered dance. I I was I was really 
and then I occasionally wrote my own pieces, but I mean, I was, I was so focused on editing that part of it, part of why I stepped away was it was fun to be an editor to prove to myself I could do it, especially because I thought you had to go to Yale to be an editor. And then I found mm -hmm. out, oh, no, apparently not. Yeah. Um, I, mm. But it was uh, sheer luck, you know, that I got offered as an interim position that I ended mm -hmm. up being hired full time. I didn't go to journalism school, as you know, I didn't do, I just had done well as like a journalist freelancer that they were like, mm -hmm. yeah, edit for us. So, you know, it gave me time to think about what I really wanted to do. And I realized I'm going to always be a poet. I'm always going to be a writer of all these different things, but I need to work on my novel and I need to work on screenplays. And so that's part of why I'm out in LA. Editing all those different, uh, ways of art i guess did that mm -hmm. was that an education in and of itself yes absolutely i love i love classical music now i love opera like i already liked opera before i started i'd seen a like you know an opera la Bohème on, at the sydney opera house once and i thought that was amazing but i mean now i'm like really into it and then like just in general i think growing up you know where we're from in oklahoma mm -hmm. And I grew up, like, my situation economically was very, like, you know, working class. I didn't feel comfortable in art spaces growing up. Like, yeah. I would go to the Gilcrease and be like, are they going to yell at me? You know, yeah. like, I, I would. I, and so, for me, the biggest adjustment was the class drag of the experience mm -hmm. of being an arts editor, where suddenly I'd went from being worried I was too dirty to, like, even go into spaces to suddenly being the person people wanted to come. Mm -hmm. And what's funny is I was, I was like very stoned, like a lot of the time I was working. So I would go into like a gallery, just like smelling like weed. And like this person would be like, Oh, have you met this writer from the New Yorker? And like, blah, blah, blah. Like you should meet. And then like talk about this artist. Da, da, da. And like, we'd be just, but the thing is I don't really like or care about being a someone. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it actually was very stressful to me. Cause I, I don't, like, you know, I would go to less things as the job went on because it became overwhelming. Uh, but I was good at handling the maintenance of the actual job, but it gave me a period where eventually uh, I was like, I don't want to go to a museum right now or a gallery, which was weird. Because before, I mean, I did enjoy those things, even if they made me uncomfortable at times because mm -hmm. they felt like this other thing I was accessing. And then being too mm -hmm. in it, I was like, I understand that, like, this is all blood money. And, you know, oh, really? like, I, well... Like the art, the whole arts industry, right? Like, are you familiar with the Sacklers? No. So, like, you should look into the artist Nan Golden's group, Payne, because they brought down this family that basically financed, <laughs> like, 98% of the arts industry. I mean, they had a wing at the Tate, at the Met, the Guggenheim, at everything, right? Not anymore, because they were outed for, like, their involvement in the creation of the opioid epidemic in the United States. Because what? of a very famous artist. Yes. And so that's the point I'm making, is the art world is intermingled with the power to be of capitalism, right? And, like, mm -hmm. I made sure when I was an arts editor to cover labor movements within the museum, you know, like striking organizations and unions and things like that i really made sure to be on top of that but it was like yeah it is it is still very much um, a market and that is one important thing to learn about it and i think that goes into all creative industries 
And I mean, I love art, but yeah. I mean, after I quit my job, it took me four months to go to a museum, five months maybe, and longer, because I just was like burnout. I was a bit burnout yeah. when you're covering. Like I was like, I don't ever hear the name Damien Hirsch ever again. <laughs> like, or, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, I don't need to think about like any artist ever. <laughs> like, I was like, yeah. I'm done. <laughs> but what that's not your... true. I love art, but yeah. What do you miss back from to art? What do you miss from that period of time? I would say what I miss hmm, would be being able to give writers that I knew could do the work opportunities to do it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like people I really believed in and getting to watch them write art criticism and then go on to write at bigger places. Like, being able to be the person that could write someone their green card letter at rack, you know, things like that. And I think being able to be there for the writers I work with, honestly, like being able to be a resource when I could be, I think that is, cause it's, it is easier to do that when you are a literal editor. And that is something I miss. Cause I did enjoy being able to assist other people in their careers in that way. Would you, would you ever create your own uh, magazine? No, I mean, I have so much respect uh, for people who do that, but I I think it's the burnout cycle of media that I kind of want to avoid right now. And who knows? Maybe in fifteen years, I'll feel so different. What maybe if you just will. you just work but on one one magazine? Uh, it would be a huge passion project. It would be it would take yeah. my whole life. So I don't. That's the issue. Like media is um, both. A burnout cycle waiting to happen as well as like you know very like people appreciate it but only so long it's very temporal you know mm -hmm. so and I, I mean I have so much respect for people that have found in my opinion really interesting media groups like Alana Levinson uh with Mel like mm -hmm. I loved following Mel's like rise and fall and rise and fall again um, and I think, again, I have a lot of respect for people like that. I mm -hmm. just don't know if I have it in me, you know what I mean? To, cause it's like creating a baby. You don't know. We'll make it to five. A magazine. Yeah. Or a newspaper or any of those things. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I mean, if people at the most, you know, established, right. Media places lose their jobs every six months. That's true. And I, and so when you think of it from a perspective of responsibility, it's like I wouldn't want to bring people onto something that I wasn't sure of, right? Uh -huh. And so it would it would just be it would have I would have to be in a certain place in my life where that felt like something I could commit to and believed could actually hold muster mm -hmm. um, enough to do that. You know? Are there any magazines that you've really admired? Mm, magazines i mean that's kind of like a like difficult question i mean i've admired a lot of different publications um more so like general newspapers like i love like the new republic for example i enjoy a lot of the nation's coverage um logic magazine though especially shout out to my friend um their new tech editor edward Anguasso. um logic mag is very good um but again these aren't even poetry things these are just yeah. <laughs> things i just enjoy reading but i'm like a non-fiction head so i love news i'm a news junkie clearly a little bit 
Because you can't work in the news for so long and not still be intaking it, even once you're out of it or trying mm -hmm. to be out of it because it's your life for so long, you know? What essayist do you enjoy reading? Mm. I'm reading The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. Um, got awarded a Pulitzer, but is written in such a fucking fantastic way. Um, I would say, though, in regards to overall essayists, it's funny because, like, when I read essays, it feels like it's always, like, really random and just stuff online. But, like, there are a lot of things that I just kind of take in but lately i've been just reading a lot of stuff on dev so everything that's coming to me are people like you know i'm just gonna be like great googler uh um because so basically i've been working on a fiction book on dev like i've started researching one so basically everything i'm reading right now is more dev <laughs> so that's death? Almost, like all what aspect of death um micro to macro i mean um the death of others the death of the self uh the death of systems the death of the anthropocene looking at death as organic death versus violent death organic death being illness and aging violent death being um two types systemic death aka government mandated systemic death things like incarceration immigration death row the military police etc uh and the second one is non-government mandated violent death such as homicides you know murders things like that right that are used to justify uh, governments as oh, the you, violence. Do you want to bring, speaking of that, do you want to bring up the uh, the case of when you were a teenager and you had a classmate who disappeared? Oh, well, um, I'm still thinking on the essayist question because I'm like, who are my favorite? I'm like, I'm blank for a second. Oh, sorry. Um, no, 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 because it's just, that's the thing. There are so many good essayists that I think that if I were to mention like anyone living, I would lose out on the living, so I'm just going to say Ernest Becker right now because he's long dead. Um, okay. But to the question about Paige Moore, Paige Moore, I, uh, she was in my geometry class, and she was very good friends with a lot of people I was friends with. And one day, and there are people that saw her the day she went missing. There are people, I think, that know what happened. Um, but yeah, the police listed her as a runaway and didn't really do much to try to figure out what happened to her uh and somebody i talked to and caught up with this past year tried to claim someone reached out to my friend right being like i saw that girl Whoa. like recently wait what yeah like somebody tried to tell my friend that it's and then they kind of got really quiet about it and here's the thing is I don't know if she's alive or not, but if she is, it's like, I, I kind of thought she was long dead, if I'm being real. But if she is, I mean, I really just hope she's out there happy and okay. But yeah, like she completely disappeared. Like no one, all of Broken Arrow, I would say, if you bring up Paige Moore and you, they were around and they didn't know who you're talking about. Because everyone, like everyone, like, you put in cold, like I found out there's a cold case Reddit thread about her and there are people still commenting within the last year or so. Being like, mm -hmm. I think about her every day. Yeah, they were saying like she disappeared like in the early morning because she was supposed to go to like summer school, I think. Supposedly, yeah. Yeah, and then she just, she didn't show up. And they have Yeah, no that's what, what they happened. say. That's what they say. So you think you've talked to people who saw her that day? The night before. 
the night before. Well, I talked to people that knew people who okay. saw her the night before. And I know one of them, but I haven't had a chance to ask him. And the other one served in 20 years, so. Oh, wow. So I don't, that's the thing. I truly think Broken Arrow is cursed. I've been reflecting on it. I think it's a cursed place. A lot of people go missing. A lot of people die. A lot of people die young. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know if you found this, but I mean, it's it's a real it's a real doozy. And Pedro Moore for me was one of the things that really made me. Uh, it really shook me as a young person to know your friend could be there and then not be there. You know, and you know you watch all that propaganda, you know, all those shows mm-hmm. by missing people where they're like, there's a person missing. We're on it. We're going to interview every single person that's seen this person. They didn't even fucking release Paige's phone records. They didn't even fucking try. So for me, it was a huge influence on my view on the government, on their ability to take control over a situation mm-hmm. and their ability to care about people. So you say Broken Arrow's curse. Do you think that's just a lack yeah. of infrastructure and money into broken Arrow. no i think broken arrow has more money than other places in oklahoma got more money than cushing you know Mm -hmm. but but like i think that i mean let's be real oklahoma has a cursed history oh yeah as a state Mm -hmm. and tulsa as a city and then broken arrow i mean it isn't a, a it isn't taken away from that you know what i mean it is in that yeah, and and it and it's an ongoing Oklahoma as a whole is an ongoing colonial project. Mm-hmm. And that's something I've had to unpack growing up there, leaving it, and being like, yeah, like it it is. It's this really weird thing, and so I don't put it past it to be cursed at all. And the fact that so many people like die young, go missing. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you remember when Sam Shannon was struck by lightning? Did you remember hearing about that? No. There was a kid that my older sister knew who straight up got struck by lightning and died at 14 in Broken Arrow. Like, there are weird things in Broken Arrow that have occurred that don't make any damn sense. And to me, Mm -hmm. one of them is Paige Moore going missing. So, yeah. Have you ever thought... It's a really weird thing. Of, like, sitting and writing, like, a whole thing about Paige? I've written a few things about Paige, just not publicly. Uh, I wrote beginning of the script that was just a girl runaway from a pov of a girl runaway who survives mm-hmm. um i've written a lot of things just at like little essays to myself about like um you know that situation but it, it's one of those things that like any death of, or and that's what's weird is death in itself there's it's difficult to have closure uh yeah. and then when someone goes missing it's impossible to have closure mm-hmm. like impossible i tried looking so. up the date of any if anything significant was going on at the time of telsa on that date, and all i could find was like the admiral twin was like reopening so i can't really oh, find lol the admiral twin i found out via the tulsa world archive that like like I think two other people or something went missing within that month. Really? Adults, but yeah. Jesus and only Christ. one reporter from the Tulsa World connected any of them to Paige going missing. And so I reached out to that guy, but he was no longer a reporter anymore. And he was being honest that like he didn't really know anything more, you know? Mm-hmm. So 
But I've tried. I've tried. Um, I think that, like, yeah, it, it's a really weird thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think simultaneously, I mean, Broken Arrow has been impacted by many tragedies. Um, also, recently, the death of Daniel Ashton in Colorado, who had been a classmate of mine, not really heavily impacted all of, I think, Tulsa and Broken Arrow as a whole, yeah. even though it didn't occur there because everyone knew Daniel. And I think that there's just um, a marked amount of tragedy, yes. I mean, it's it seems to me. And obviously, I don't even know if I believe in like afterlife or real curses or anything like that. I'm more just kind of using that loosely to be like, something's up there because things are weird, you know? Oh, Something yeah. is rotten in Denmark in Broken Era, in my opinion, in that way, yeah. Oh, you were it's funny, I didn't know how much. No, I, I had a... Like, was I ever? Yeah. Uh, I grew up technically in, yeah, the Christian church, as anyone in the Bible Belt. But because my parents, as I said, I was very working class. And as you know, back home, you're a bad Christian if you don't go on Wednesday and on Sunday. And, like, the environment of the Bible Belt is so, especially the time in the Bush era that I was growing up in, mm-hmm. so heavy-handed. And so... I had like a full existential crisis at 12 that led to me kind of losing a heavy belief in God. And I had a a bit of, I would say, an atheistic streak through the majority of the time I was in Oklahoma. I think partially because in Oklahoma, you can't just not be religious. Mm -hmm. You have to have an opinion. You have to have a belief. So for me, it was, okay, well, I'm just going the opposite side, you know? Yeah. And then when I traveled a bit and left Oklahoma and saw how religion was just approached in other places, even Christianity, you know, I was like, Oh, okay. Not everyone's going to be like that. I get that. Maybe I had a, just a really intense, you know, and to be fair, it wasn't even as bad as some people, but it was enough for me to just see that. Like, I just felt the Bible bell gave me too much existential anxiety. I think to be wanting to be religious. I mean, I have a horror story from a slumber party. I attended when I was seven. Mm-hmm. Where I went to this girl's house, girl, I think we were in soccer together. And all of a sudden, four different girls came up to me. And I was like on, like, she had like this, um, the way her living room was set up, there was the living room. And then there was like this, you know, balcony that like you could look down on, you know, very yeah. common architectural thing at the time. And so I was standing like, like on the edge of this balcony and there's living room. And these four girls come up to me, like in front of me. And they're like, Aaron, we want to talk to you about something. And I was like what is it? You know, like I was really like, it felt like a mafia movie or something. Even my yeah. memory of it, it feels like that. Cause they were like closing in on me yeah. and they're like, we're really worried about you. What the and fuck? I was like, and I was like, what? Cause again, I was like seven or something. And I was like, what do you mean? And they were like, so, you know, as we're all Christians, we all love Jesus. We know you do too, but you don't really go to church. What like the you fuck? don't, because my parents were work sometimes on Sundays and Wednesdays, so I couldn't go to church consistently, right? Yeah, I wasn't a consistent churchgoer because we economically could not be. And so, and at that at this moment, I did believe in God. So mm-hmm. it was very scary to have all these. Um, and I would say right now, for clarification, I'd say I'm agnostic. If there's a God, cool. If there isn't, cool. I yeah, it, it's hard for me to even touch that still. But they came up to me and they were like, you know, Aaron, like we don't want you to go to hell. Mm-hmm. So you need to come to church more. Oh. I lost my fucking shit and called my mom. I was like, mom, I need to go home. 
I was crying. I mean, that's all I remember of it. But it was like so many moments like that. And you'll grab by the Bible Belt. It's normal to, you know, be in your elementary school bathroom and some girl's talking about how she can speak in tongues, you know? Yeah. And then I also, as a child, had a lot of friends in um, all Christian religions. By that, I mean, they weren't like in the normal, like I had one of my best friends was Catholic, for example. Mm-hmm. You don't, you're not a Catholic in Oklahoma, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then I knew the only Jewish person at my school and became friends with him. I was like, like straight up because there was only one. And then uh, two of my best friends grew up for Mormon. So mm-hmm. I, I ended up just befriending people from other ones somewhat cause out of interest more, obviously. Um, but because it was just too much mm-hmm. to like want. To, like, I think growing up in Oklahoma gave me a very antagonistic streak towards groups. Yeah. You know, and being in a group. Yeah, when I was young, I guess, the church that my family attended, it like, closed down and my mom like never went to or sought out like another church and she was always like that was her biggest regret so like i grew up not going to any church mm. i'm so glad i did not have that fucking group that experience um i wanted to ask you you had a, a very important like mentor in your life i think when you were young you maybe it was in college or, like in asia or something mm-hmm. Did yeah. you want to speak about them? Oh, Luay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Luay actually has a poem in my book. Um, yeah, Luay is kind of, in a way, uh, he was originally my professor. Uh, he was my, uh, <laughs> so funny, he was my ethnic minorities in China professor, as well as my modern Chinese history professor, because uh, he was my professor for two semesters. And then um, the year he was my professor, I had the first mental breakdown of my life when I was 19 oh. living. This is when I became a poet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it all connects back to that. Uh, and I lost my mind. And that's when I finally started submitting poetry because my view of it at the time was, what's the worst thing anyone could do? Just reject me. I already want to die. I mean, like mm-hmm. I'm just going to submit poems. And it actually ended up, again, making me think, oh, maybe I shouldn't die. Uh, People like my poems sometimes. What was the breakdown from? Uh, a lot of things. I think because I had a horrible childhood, uh, but also I had a really unfortunate experience uh, early on in my year in China where I was assaulted. So I uh, just had a huge breakdown for like a year. And Lu Wei was... Um, this professor kind of took me in just to make sure I was okay. And then we kind of formed just an overall friendship. And it actually kind of became like a dad figure to me because over time, I mean, you know, we traveled like together a lot and, you know, he kind of ended up taking this role. Like I would spent Christmases with him. And when I graduated college, I mean, my actual parents, I mean, my mama told me that I did something she could never do, direct quote, when I graduated college. And my dad gave me a hundred bucks and said, you did it kid. And then Lue flew me to Italy for two weeks. So, oh. you know, it was like, because he, he's like this, like, eccentric, he used to be a TV show host in Beijing for 10 years in the 90s. Wow. Like, he's kind of this very eccentric um, man who also, like, he met me in his early 60s. Like, I think maybe actually 59, and then turned 60 there, he met me. And I've now understood astrologically that that is, the beginning of one of the main Saturn returns of your life, if you make it there, where you start to understand you have things to give to the other generation. 
and he ended up yeah kind of he doesn't have any kids of his own and so he ended up being like that for me in many ways and we talk regularly still he's very much still a main support of my life and then the book that i'm at fifty nine thousand words and like the the auto fiction of sorts is based on our friendship like there is a character called gal fung in the book i am writing that is lu wei Mm -hmm. was it hard to trust someone after you go through an assault I mean, yes and no. Not with Lue, because Lue was the first older man in my life to never sexualize me. Mm -hmm. Like, he was just this, this old man that liked me and respected me and valued me as a person. And mm -hmm. and it was really special for me. And so that type of trust never ever had to be an issue, right? But in general, for people, sure, like, sleeping with people can be difficult after you have an assault or something. Mm -hmm. But in that relationship, it was more healing that I got to have like a father figure who was a good dad figure. Um, and that healed so much trust stuff for me as a whole, even outside of um, certain things, because like just knowing there was someone out there in the world who loved me, regardless of any use I had for them. Mm -hmm. I so think that's you... something everyone deserves and needs. If you direct a movie and you have a big premiere, are you going to invite him out? So he got divorced from an American uh, in the 90s. So the U.S. government doesn't allow him to get a visa. Because So fun fact, Chinese people can only have one citizenship. You can't have dual citizenship. You can only have Chinese citizenship. So because he chose not to pursue American citizenship, they basically punished him. And so he has to wait till he gets a new passport even to try to apply for a new one. That's fucking stupid. So we basically, when we see each other, I have to fly to Europe. Okay. But he's getting an apartment in Edinburgh, and he has a place in Malta. So I, again, he was kind of like a fairy goddad, right? Like, what mm -hmm. if your random professor ends up kind of adopting you, and he's also like this historian who is a TV show host who's just like this wealthy eccentric. You Would know? you be a TV show host? I don't know. I don't know if anyone would watch me do that. Uh, I, I don't know if it's my interest, but I, I see why he was good at it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like a game show host? That'd be entertaining. He interviewed authors, actually. Oh, that's cool. He would interview... He was a late-night show host who interviewed authors, which is really cool. Wow. Yeah. I think you'd be a great like late-night TV show host. Yeah, I'd just be chain-smoking the whole time. <laughs> like you interview like El Nash? Oh my gosh. Like El Nash, like interviewer. I would do that. I would interview El on camera, of course. That would be fun. I mean, I, I mean, that's the thing. That's, it is interesting talking to you because it's like I, I've been in or around or adjacent to the indie lit community my whole career as a poet. You know, it's kind of mm -hmm. like where, I mean, it's where my whole career as a writer started in general. Like I yeah. wouldn't have a career if it weren't for indie lit. And it's so interesting that you ended up becoming like the editor of like an arts section. Not just of the New York Observer, which is like a New York dinosaur that's been around forever. Like the original yeah. Sex in the City column that led to the show was written in the New York Observer. You lived that life. Straight up. But at the same time, I mean, it wasn't for me. I, I like the life of like a dirty creative more than the person curating news about dirty yeah and then you moved out to la and now you're living your life you're still very young you're only 27 that's insane 
Yeah, I turned 28 next month. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah but no, I'm 35. Nice. Yeah, I'm Congrats. old. Congrats. Yeah. Nah, you. too old. Yeah. No, I mean, no, I am. I have to remind myself sometimes that I'm very young because I've basically been living an adult life since I was 18 in a yeah. really true way. Like, mm-hmm. I do think a lot of Americans go through, like, an extended adolescence due to connection to family, due to the ability to do that, whatever, financial mm-hmm. means. I've basically just been supporting myself since I was 18. Yeah. So, I mean, just doing my life. So, I don't know. Like, I, I forget sometimes that. And also, because I, I just tend to, like, I like hanging out with other passion, ambitious people. So, sometimes I'll be in a room of people 10 years older than me and i'll be like why am i not where they are and i'll have to be like oh wait like i'm a baby and that's in my whole career (laughs) are there any writers right now that you want to shout out any young writers coming up oh my goodness i mean uh, people that i would love to shout out well in general one that i want to reference because i kind of already referenced loosely but didn't say by name grace byron Mm-hmm. who is that a really fantastic critic that I basically got to publish a lot of but knew before and has continued to write like really fantastic stuff. And I'm pretty sure her first novel just got sold. Um, so it's very, very exciting. So look out for Grace Byron's work. Um, and I would say, let me think, let me look at my thing. I would say the people that I've been really excited about this year. Oh, man. Oh. First off, also, get this. Oh, yeah, sad happens. Yeah, buy that, because there are a lot of people in this in general who are interesting and fun. Uh, An anthology I was in recently. Um, But writers that I would shout out, continuing. Well, there's just a huge list that I'm just going to continue. I think I got hung up on the young, because I'm like, there are so many young writers that, like, how to define. Um, So I'm just going to give a list. Writers that I'm obsessed with this past year that I think deserve more credit. Ruth and Glazer, really fantastic playwright that everyone should look into. Um, obviously, you already mentioned Elle Nash, but Elle Nash's new book, Deliver Me, I've been obsessed with. Very, very, very into. Happy that I already read, read one of Stace Teague's poems because everyone should read Stace Teague. Um, I would say, though, for young writers. Oh, Cecily Chen. Um, read Cecily Chen's uh, translations mm-hmm. really fucking fantastic Chinese p- poet and translator that I think is doing really incredible work right now at the I believe Chicago Review uh, but don't quote me on that uh, but Cecily is definitely fucking fantastic and is definitely up and coming um, that I think everybody yeah should just like dive in um, on a separate note, this is just a dead person, but I still think everyone should read Kathy Acker, but that's, again, dead person. Very different. Mm. Um, it's funny. I'm just like, I feel like a lot of the writers I interact a lot with right now are journalists as well as the issues. So again, Evan Guasso, everyone read Ed's work. Um, and I would just say, in general, like, two young poets is like, read everything, not just poetry. Yeah. I agree. Like, if I were to kind of switch this into what advice I would give to young poets, is it's just like, and also trust what you're writing. You like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Trust what you're writing. I think that in the same way that people will often look for a lot of permission to be poets, right? As I was speaking to earlier, I think people, especially if they go into like an MFA system, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, oh, also shout out to Shy Watson. Um, uh, MFA system. I think that, you know, people can often leave that without trust for what they want to do. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when I say trust what you're writing, I quite literally mean trust that you know what you're meant to say and that okay. you know what you're doing with your own work. Because I think so often people don't do that. And then they make their work into something else because they think it'll fit a mold that will give them the type of credibility they desire as poets. And then they when burn reality, out faster. Yeah, you burn out a lot faster when you're trying to fit a mold and also to constantly be putting out work. Another thing I would say to people, to anyone listening, is have time not making anything. Have time living. Have time resting. Have time thinking about what you feel. Like, all of these things will make your work better. Mm -hmm. Um, As much as reading more things, totally, yes. But, like, interacting with yourself on a deep level. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, like, it's one of those things that if you don't do that, you won't have anything to say. Mm Mm-hmm.